Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me tonight is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well myself. My book club, which we generally read literary fiction, we do read some nonfiction, but this year we decided to read a true crime book, and we read In Cold Blood, which for me was a reread, but reading it after having done a research-based podcast for a year and a half, I took a more critical look at it. And so tonight's episode is going to be about the murders made famous in the classic true crime novel In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. In scripting this, I went outside the book. I found information that either wasn't in the book or is in the book but is disputed. Capote claimed his book to be 100% factual, but it appears he did play with the characters and possibly sequence of events for the sake of storytelling. So this episode is a culmination of quite a bit of background work I've been working on over the past several weeks. As we often do, we're going to start in the beginning with who the victims were. The family at the center of this is the Clutter family, and they were a farming family living in a rural town in western Kansas. Herb was the patriarch of the family. He attended Kansas State University, and he majored in agriculture. When he moved to Holcomb to start farming for himself, a lot of people wondered if he knew what he was getting into. Most of the farm and ranch owners in the area were generational farmers. They knew what they were doing without having gone to college to learn it. But Herb proved himself competent with the land he leased rather quickly, and in 1948, he was able to build a two-story, four-bedroom home for his family. They named the farm River Valley Farm. Between the property he owned and farmed, and also the property he leased to farm, he worked over 3,000 acres of property. Years ago, I had a friend, and her husband used to say, Kathy kills time by working it to death. And that would describe Herb. He didn't like idleness. He didn't generally attend strictly social events. He socialized through his work with various community groups he was active in. He was extremely friendly, and he was described as warm and kind. At the time of the murder, he was 48 years old. While in college, he met a classmate's pretty sister, Bonnie Fox. She was three years younger than Herb, and it wasn't long before they were dating and then married. Bonnie had a great childhood, and she had started school to become a nurse. While in school to be a nurse, she became very sick with appendicitis, and she had an appendectomy. Today, that's done laparoscopically, and it's barely a major surgery. But back then, this was a big surgery, and the recovery time had put her behind in her studies. And then she married Herb and just didn't finish her degree. Together, they had four children. The portrayal of Bonnie in the book, In Cold Blood, has been challenged by pretty much everyone who knew her. She is portrayed in the book as almost a ghost of a person, so severely affected by depression and anxiety. It's said in the book that their teen daughter, basically ran the house. I know I did read in different blogs and forums that In Cold Blood did take some artistic license with the main players in the story. Yeah, and it seems Bonnie may be the one that the family complains about the most because Bonnie did suffer from depression following the births of her children. 
And at the time the crime takes place, she had been in the hospital for it. But this is her actively seeking what medical options were available for her for treatment. This isn't her laying in her room, refusing to move or being bedridden with depression like it sounds in the book. I mean, this is 60, 70 years ago. MAOIs were very early in being introduced at this time and were 30 years before SSRIs like Prozac and Zoloft would have been available to her. But she was actively seeking treatment. But even with her depression anxiety, the Clutters regularly hosted meetings and parties in their home. Bonnie was known for her hospitality. Her children did not run her household. She did. She also had a back injury, and that left her in pain. And one thing in the book, it mentions a surgery that the doctors had come up with to help treat her. And the book makes it sound like it was going to treat her depression, but this was actually to treat her back pain. This was shortly before her death. She was feeling hopeful that this surgery might ease some of her pain. Anyone with chronic pain out there, they can attest that it can lead to or at least contribute to depression. Like Charlie said, the Clutters had four children. Their older daughters were Ivana and Beverly. Ivana was 23 and lived out of state with her husband and her infant son, and he was the first grandchild for the Clutters. Beverly was 21 and away at college in Kansas City, Kansas, and she was studying to be a nurse. While at school, she became engaged to another student. To accommodate their school schedules, they were planning to be married over the Christmas break of 1959. Two children still lived at home. The third cluttered daughter was Nancy, and she was 16 years old. And she was a lot like her dad, only more socially outgoing. She was always helping others and participated in various clubs and activities in town. She hoped to attend Kansas State like her father and she wanted to study art. She had been dating a boy from school named Bobby Rupp. They were pretty serious, though Herb didn't entirely approve. Bobby was a good kid, but Herb was in the mindset that dating was for marriage and there was no sense in going steady with someone you weren't going to marry. And the main obstacle there with the future marriage was that Bobby was Catholic and the Clutters were Methodist. Nancy has been described as having a mind of her own, and she continued to see Bobby, and her parents knew about it. It wasn't like she was trying to hide it. The fourth and final child of the Clutters was a son named Kenyon, and he was just a year younger than Nancy. He was an active kid. He liked to be doing things like roaming around the property, tinkering with his truck, hunting and woodworking. He was really good mechanically, and though the expectation would be that he would stay and work on the farm, he seemed interested in becoming an engineer. I don't want us to fall into the trap of canonizing the victims. They were whole people. They had strengths. They had weaknesses like everyone else. But it was hard to find too many people with much of a negative thing to say about any of the clutters, and this is an important point when you're looking at the case. Victimology is an investigative tool. So victimology is, in short, the study of victims, as it sounds like it means. In a broad sense, it can influence policy as we see how victims are affected by their trauma. But in a more narrow sense, we can look at a specific victim, look back on their life and experiences and habits, and use what we know about victims and crimes to profile the perpetrator. 
Now, this isn't the same as victim blaming, of course. We will bring up some of these things when we discuss the directions initially pursued in the investigation, but finding a motive for these murders wouldn't be very simple. The Clutters made their home in Holcomb, Kansas, which is a small town in western Kansas. It's only about 60 miles or 96 kilometres from the Colorado border. Holcomb had a few hundred residents at the time, and the main road was still a dirt road. River Valley Farm was on the southwestern edge of town, and the nearest neighbour then, as it is now, was quite a distance away, at least half a mile or eight-tenths of a kilometre away. The farm was also at the end of a road, so there wouldn't be cars driving by very often. It was an isolated location, to say the least. The property had three permanent structures that are relevant here. There was the home that the family lived in, and about 100 yards or 91 metres from the house was a smaller house that the full-time farm employee lived in with his family. And for those who aren't great at measurements, like myself, this is a bit shorter than a football or soccer pitch. The employee was a man named Alfred, and he, his wife, and their three young children, they were the only other residents of the property, or the other hired hands on the farm, they lived elsewhere. The third structure was located in between the two homes, it was a barn, This placement is important when we talk about witnesses or the lack of witnesses for that matter later on. The Clutter House itself was a good-sized home that Herb and Bonnie designed themselves. There were four bedrooms, one on the main floor and three upstairs. The main floor bedroom was Herb and Bonnie's master bedroom. Upstairs, Nancy had her bedroom at the top of the stairs. Kenyon was down the hall and a spare room at the end. And that's where Bonnie occasionally slept if she wanted to stay up late in bed reading or what have you. There was also a bathroom upstairs. The house had an office built onto the side of it, and the office had its own entrance from outside. This allowed Herb to do farm business from home, but it also stopped everyone coming through the family home. The home also had a full basement. One part of the basement is what is often reported as a playroom – Now, when I hear playroom, I think of a room for young children and their toys. But I'd say that this setup was more like what we would call a rec room today. It was more for entertaining. The furnace room was also in the basement. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. If you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward. But you also know that it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. You can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com site. That's ZipRecruiter.com site. 
one more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com site. This background leads us to the day before the murder. On Saturday, November 14th, 1959, the Clutter family had a usual Saturday. Nancy was busy with a variety of activities all day. Kenyon and the farm workers did the daily farm chores that exist seven days a week on a farm. Bonnie stayed home, and as far as we know, she only spoke with family members and a younger girl who came over. Nancy was teaching her how to bake a pie that day. Herb had a meeting with a life insurance agent. He had been spending several months trying to make a decision about the policy, and he was ready to sign for the life insurance and make his first payment that Saturday. The insurance agent was at the house for hours closing the deal with Herb and left around 6 p.m. with the signed policy and the first payment. An employee of the farm remembered several days later that two men who appeared to be Mexican had come up the long drive and spoke to Herb outside the office on that Saturday. He doesn't know what they discussed, but the men left after a little conversation. The insurance agent, however, was in the office at the time he said the men had come by, and he said this didn't happen. So it could be the farm employee has the day or the time of day wrong. The next day was Sunday, and two farm hands arrived early in the morning to do the morning chores, and they left about 9 a.m., As they were walking away from the property, a car was heading towards it. The Clutters rarely missed a Sunday in the pews of the Methodist Church in Garden City, and they would drive one of Nancy's classmates, who was also named Nancy, they would drive her to church as her parents didn't go. To save her father, Clarence, from having to make the drive to and from Garden City, the Clutters would just have Clarence drop off Nancy at their house. Clarence pulled up at the house this Sunday and waited in the car for his daughter to go in. The family cars were in the garage, but no one answered the front door when Nancy rang the bell. She went to the office door and it was partly ajar. It was dark, so she didn't think it was proper just to walk in. She tried the two other doors, one to the kitchen and there was one to the utility room, but still no one answered. She went back to her dad's car and he said that they were probably still asleep. But the thing is, they had never overslept before, so they left and went to another one of Nancy's friend's houses. This friend, Susan, was waiting on the clutters since they also took her to church, only they picked her up on the way at her home. Clarence and Nancy figured that she would know if something was going on. The thing is, Susan hadn't heard anything, which wasn't like the family. If plans changed, they would have called. Susan called the clutter home, but hung up when they didn't answer. It was decided that Susan and Nancy would go back to the clutter home with Clarence and go to wake up the family. Susan reported later that she felt scared to go in, though she didn't know why. It's pretty clear no one expected anything bad to have happened because Clarence set the two teen girls in by themselves. Clarence was also a farmer and he was still in his work clothes. He had never been inside the clutter home before and he wasn't dressed for visiting. It just made sense for the girls who were dressed for church to go in. They went in through the unlocked kitchen door. It was common for the clutters to leave that door unlocked. 
But the kitchen had no signs of breakfast having been prepared, but it did have Nancy's purse opened on the floor near the back door. The girls called up the stairs for Nancy, and then they went up to her room when no one answered. Susan went into the room, screamed, and ran out. Nancy, not sure why Susan screamed, she went in after her. To her, it looked at first like Nancy was still sleeping, so she took a few more steps into the room before she noticed the blood on the walls. They ran out of the house and right to Clarence, who had gotten out of the car thinking that he probably should have went in with the girls. The girls were hysterical, and he wasn't 100% sure what they were saying except that there was blood. He went inside to call for the police. The receiver was off the hook, and he saw that the line had been cut. Clarence and the girls went back to Susan's house to call the sheriff in Garden City. Clarence and another neighbor of Susan's drove to the highway to meet the sheriff to lead him to the Clutter's farm. It was between 9.30 and 10 a.m. at this point. At the Clutter's, Clarence told the sheriff what had already happened with the girls, the blood, the cut phone line. The sheriff radioed for more officers to come out and for an ambulance. The three men entered the house, again through the unlocked kitchen door. They went right to Nancy's room and found her in bed, lying on her side facing the wall. She was obviously shot in the back of the head, and the covers were pulled up like she had been tucked in for bedtime. Under the covers, however, she was still wearing her bathrobe over her pajamas, and her slippers were on her feet. So they assumed that She hadn't been in bed already when it happened, or she had gotten up and covered up with the robe while whatever happened was happening. Her hands and feet were bound with a thin cord. The other bedroom doors were closed. Kenyon's room was empty, but his blankets were disturbed and his glasses, which he really couldn't do without, were on his bookshelf. They didn't know where he was, but it looked like he had gone to bed the night before. At the end of the hall was the spare bedroom, and Bonnie had spent the night there that night. She was also in the bed. She was bound, like Nancy, and she was shot in the head. Downstairs in the master bedroom, Herb's room looked a lot like Kenyon's. Glasses on the shelf. Someone had slept in the bed, but there was no Herb. They then went down to the basement rec room, and that's where they found Kenyon's body. He was bound by cords and shot in the head. He was lying on the couch with pillows under his head. In the furnace room, they found Herb. His body was lying on a large, flattened cardboard box. He was bound. He, too, was shot, but he also had his throat cut. The Kansas Bureau of Investigation was called in immediately. The sheriff knew this crime required experience that his rural department just didn't have. An agent named Al Dewey was the lead investigator, and his son remembers the police coming into church that morning to get him. Dewey lived in Garden City and attended the same church as the Clutters. It didn't take long for word to get out about what happened. The KBI came into the crime scene and had all the rooms photographed, and the bodies and the space around the bodies that was also photographed, and they dusted for latent prints. On the cardboard box Herb was lying on was a boot print in the blood. 
It was a distinct boot too. The lab was able to identify it as a Cat Paws brand boot that had a distinctive sole. When the photographs were developed, a second boot print of a different boot was seen. This print was in the dust and it too was near Herb's body. It wasn't something anyone noticed at the scene. It just happened to be in the photograph that had been taken for another purpose. This confirmed that there was at least two killers, which the KBI, they'd already started to suspect. Because there was no sign of a struggle, it would have been extremely difficult for one person to keep the other family members from intervening as they tied everyone up. We're going to take another break for a word from our sponsor before we get into the investigation. My dog, Lacey, loves BarkBox. She mostly loves the treats in there, but she doesn't say no to those super fun toys that they put in there. It's always a theme every month, and all of the things in there go with the theme, which she doesn't care about the theme, but it definitely makes it more fun for me. With BarkBox, you tell them how big your dog is. If you have a little one, a medium-sized one, a big and bold dog, and you can choose your own plan, one, six, 12-month plans. And what they do every month is pick the best all-natural treats and innovative toys to match a dog's unique needs, including allergies and not an issue I have with Lacey. She's pretty gentle. But if your dog's a heavy chewer, they will put in toys that will fit that preference. BarkBox is a great way to try a variety of treats from local and small businesses. Lacey loved this one treat so much that I went out and ordered more online because I can't get it where I am. BarkBox includes free shipping within the continental U.S. If you want to try BarkBox, and I know your dog wants you to try BarkBox, go to BarkBox.com insight. When you subscribe to a 6 or 12 month plan, They'll throw in a free extra month of BarkBox if you go to BarkBox.com insight. Of course, investigators first looked at the last known person to see the clutters alive, and that was Bobby Rupp. Bobby had been over to the clutter home to watch TV with Nancy and her family that evening. He left between 10 and 11 p.m., and this time is confirmed by the farm employee who heard him leave. Beyond being the last person to see the clutters alive, there was also the way the family was killed. Herb, Bonnie, and Kenyon were all shot in the side or front of their heads where they would have seen their killer and their killer would have been looking at them in the face. But Nancy was shot in the back of the head facing away from the killer. The question was, did this happen because the killer couldn't stand to look at Nancy when he killed her. So then they wanted to look at someone who would have cared for Nancy. It could be argued Bobby had some motive since Herb had told Nancy she needed to see less of him and not to go steady or pair off with him. But he was at the house watching TV with everyone, so it's not like Herb wasn't letting them see each other at all. In fact, Nancy and Bobby had wanted to go to a midnight movie that Saturday and Herb told them they should go on Friday instead, which they did. So even if Herb didn't think Nancy should pair off with Bobby, he didn't stop them from seeing each other. So it was a fairly thin motive. He was questioned, of course, and he was questioned by Agent Dewey, who realized pretty quickly that Bobby had nothing to do with it. They went ahead and gave him a polygraph, and he passed the polygraph though polygraphs in 1959 were even less reliable than they are now, but it's pretty clear Bobby had nothing to do with it. But 
The suspicion didn't necessarily stop in the community, and Bobby eventually transferred to a different high school to just get away from some of the gossip. It would have been hard enough him losing his girlfriend, let alone all the rumors that went with that. Exactly. I can't even imagine being a 17-year-old kid and dealing with that. Some people in town wondered how Alfred and his family, particularly since they admitted they were up with a sick baby that night, that they didn't hear anything. The last thing Alfred admitted hearing was Bobby Rupp leaving. Perhaps he had some conflict with Herb that no one knew about. The talk did bother Alfred, but it didn't seem to go much further than talk. Between the book and digging through articles, we didn't see anything that makes it look like Alfred was considered a viable suspect, though. We also didn't see any explanation of why he was ruled out. It would make sense to look at the only other adults who lived on the property, so we have to assume he was investigated early on. Now, as to why they didn't hear or see anything, we need to remember the layout of the property. While there was only 100 yards between the two houses, there was also a barn in between. Perhaps this barn was enough to dull the sound of a gun, or perhaps the baby was crying loud enough that they didn't hear it. Or maybe because it was a rural property, the sound of a gunshot didn't arouse enough suspicion to be remembered. There were two major theories among investigators in this case, and we'll get to those in a second. But we want to talk first about that insurance policy. Herb took out a sizable insurance policy, $40,000, with double indemnity in case of an accident, and a murder would count as an accident. The surviving beneficiaries would be his surviving daughters, who would get this $40,000 each because of the double payout. If we adjust this for inflation, this was more than $300,000. But... Who can really imagine their involvement? First, the closest one lived about six hours away. The other one lived roughly double that distance. Second, we don't even know that they knew about the policy. Herb had been looking into getting a policy for several months. So it's likely they didn't know he had even gone ahead and signed it that day. And regardless, even if they did know, he signed and handed over the first payment on a Saturday. That means the agent did not have a chance to cash the check or file the policy yet. The insurance company could have declined the entire thing since nothing was filed. But the insurance company did do the right thing here and they did pay out. The insurance policy, while I can't imagine any other case where this wouldn't set off alarm bells, it looks like it was honest to goodness just a coincidence that Herb took out this policy hours before his death. Okay, so now to the two prominent theories. The first is along the lines of a grudge, but instead of being about not dating his daughter, this would be a business grudge. As we mentioned earlier about victimology, looking at Herb's business dealings and reputation in the community would hopefully help here. Herb was an honest man and well-respected in the community, but he had his financial ups and downs. They looked at anyone who may have had bad dealings with Herb, and two specific instances were looked at. In one, Herb had what was reported as a minor business transaction with a man that was unspecified, but the man felt that Herb hadn't been on the up and up with him and went to the farm with his son to confront Herb. 
He and his son had both been drunk and Herb met them with his gun and forced them off his property. Herb had dislike for drunkenness and would not have spoken to the two drunk and confrontational men. The men reportedly held a long-lasting grudge against Herb, more about marching them off his property with a gun than about the business deal. Both submitted alibis that checked out. Another man in town believed Herb was responsible for shooting his hunting dog. When investigators went to his property, rope similar to what was used in the murders was in his barn, and the knots were the same kind of knot that were used on that rope too. But he was also cleared when he had his alibi checked. He was in Oklahoma the night of the murders. A grudge is absolutely where the investigation was leading at the time, though the idea of a robbery is the second theory that was considered. There was one big reason the idea of a robbery wasn't considered more strongly than the grudge theory. Investigators believe the murders were conducted by someone who knew the family. And anyone who knew the family knew that Herb was well known for never carrying cash. This weekend was a bit of an exception. He happened to have some cash on him, but he was known for writing checks for pretty much anything over a dollar. No one who knew the family would have bothered trying to rob them. If it was someone unknown to the family, why would they target that home? There was nothing about the home that would make anyone think they were exceptionally wealthy. The property was rather remote. It was at the end of the road. No one would have just been driving by and seen the house and thought it looked like a good one to rob. Some in town wondered if the house was hit on accident. The robbers were perhaps targeting a wealthier family and went to the wrong place, being unfamiliar with the area. But that would have been poor directions on their part, considering the houses were nowhere near close to each other. I can't imagine thinking their house was anyone else's house. And if I remember, I'll post a aerial Google map shot so you can see where the house is. Even at the crime scene, the signs of a robbery were inconsistent. Nancy's purse was rifled through, and Herb's billfold had been emptied, and Kenyon's radio was missing. Later, they'd learned that a pair of binoculars was also taken. There was a gold watch that Herb had given Nancy, and it was found in the bottom of a shoe in Nancy's room. So the thinking was, Nancy, perhaps hearing people in the house, hid it thinking they were there to rob the place. However, they took these things, but Bonnie was found with her jewelry on, including a diamond ring. A few spare dollars were found in Nancy's room. Nothing else of value was taken, which split investigators. It seemed it seemed like it was possible it was a robbery-turned-murder, but it seemed equally likely that a few token items were taken, maybe as an afterthought or in an attempt to stage a robbery but that robbery wasn't the initial motive. And another puzzle from the crime scene. Bonnie and Nancy both had their covers pulled up over them. Kenyon was lying on the couch with a pillow under his head, and Herb was lying on a large flattened box rather than on the cold cement floor. This showed some care for the family and for their modesty and their comfort. So what kind of person would care about the comfort of a family that they tied up just to murder. Would an unknown robber show that care if they didn't intend to kill them? 
would a murderer who did intend to kill them show that? It just seemed like the crime scene had so many conflicting statements it was making. It was giving conflicting evidence. But all of this led investigators to really believe that they were looking at someone who knew the family. 250 tips came in early on pointing in various directions. Some seemed to be based on nothing more than gossip, but they were all followed up on and soon started dwindling. While investigators were following up on tips, the funeral was held four days after the murders. A thousand people attended and Bobby Rupp was a pallbearer. No one knew at the time, but one of the killers read about the funeral in the newspaper and was amazed at how many people knew and cared about the family. He followed the case pretty closely in the papers. Beverly, the second cluttered daughter, was advised to change her last name. Without knowing the killers, no one knew if anyone else or any other family members were targets. She was getting married in five or six weeks anyway, so why not just change her name now, just in case? She and her fiancé decided instead to move up the whole wedding. A week after the murders, with the family still in town for the funeral, Beverly got married. Now, it may seem like an odd choice or bad timing, but for the family, it was a moment of beauty while they were still dealing with the unspeakable. And in more recent interviews with family... They look back at the wedding as a beautiful moment, so it was definitely the right choice. The investigation would take a sharp left turn, and we will get into that after a word from our sponsor. I spend a lot of time in my bed. I sleep there, I research there, I edit there, I watch true crime documentaries there. I need my bed linen to be comfortable and also nice to look at. And that's exactly what I get from my Brooklinen sheets comfort and style. With brooklinen.com, you can get the high quality sheets and bedding you and your loved ones deserve without the needless luxury retail prices. Brooklinen is the fastest growing bedding brand in the world because people love these products. Their sheets have over 12,000 five-star reviews. I love my Brooklinen sheets. Try these sheets and I know you'll love them too. Brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer just for our listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code SITE at brooklinen.com. In fact, Brooklinen is so confident that you'll love your new sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. There's no reason not to give these sheets a try for yourself or maybe as a gift this holiday season. Go on, give the gift of luxury sheets. The only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code SITE at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code SITE. Brooklinen, these are the best sheets ever. On November 17th, just two days after the murders, a man named Floyd Wells was listening to the radio in his jail cell at the Kansas State Penitentiary. He heard a name he recognized, Herb Clutter. He was listening to this broadcast that was detailing the murders of Herb and his family at their home. Over a decade previously, Wells had worked for Herb as a ranch hand for about a year. As soon as he heard of the murders, he knew who killed them. 
Wells was at the start of his three to five year sentence for robbing an appliance store. He had a scheme. He was going to start a lawnmower rental company. The only thing he needed was a lawnmower. And so he attempted to steal it and he got caught. His first cellmate he had was a man named Dick Hickok, who was at the end of his sentence for passing bad checks and theft. He had stolen firearms and had tried to pawn them. During just a normal conversation, Wells brought up that he had worked as a ranch hand out in western Kansas. Through that conversation, Wells ended up telling Dick that the Clutters were a wealthy family. He had worked there when the Clutters were building their house, and he saw Mr. Clutter take money from a safe to pay a lumber bill. And according to Wells, Mr. Clutter had said something about spending $10,000 just that week on his farm operations. And this got Dick's interest, and he just kept asking more and more detailed questions about the Clutters. Wells said he remembers that there was a safe in the office, but we know now that there was not. Dick, being that he was close to release, had talked about what he was going to do when he got out of jail. And he had previously mentioned a friend of his named Perry, who he had met in prison and who had already been paroled. Dick said he was going to probably pair up with Perry for some scheme. And now with this information about this wealthy farmer who had a safe with $10,000 in cash in it, the robbery and murders of the clutters became this big score in Dick's mind. In those days, it was more common for people to conduct business in cash like that. So Dick took Wells' memory at face value. But like we said, Herb didn't do this. He conducted business by check almost exclusively. But Wells didn't know that, so he didn't convey that to Dick. Not only was this going to be a big score, according to Dick, he said he was going to leave no witnesses behind. Wells said that he didn't believe he would actually go through with it. There's a lot of bravado in prison. There's a lot of big talk. And this seemed to just be more of that talk. Until Wells heard on the radio that the Clutter family had been murdered. But he didn't immediately tell anyone. He kept his eye on the news, but he feared retribution from other inmates if he snitched. He still had a couple years left in prison. He also was worried he would be charged as an accessory which would lengthen his prison sentence. Dick had told him what he was going to do, and he went and did it, and Wells had never told anyone. So this was bothering him, and he eventually confided in another inmate. And that inmate gave Wells some cover to talk to the warden. What he did was he told the warden Wells needed to talk to him. So then the warden called Wells to his office. So as far as it looked to anyone else, Wells was being called in because he was in trouble. He wasn't the one asking to see the warden. It didn't really look like Wells was going in there of his own free will. Alternately, Wells may have heard about a $1,000 reward offered by a newspaper, and that, that helped motivate him to talk. Regardless, 10 days after the murders, Wells told the warden what he knew. Then the warden alerted the investigators. In Cold Blood made it sound like Dewey immediately sent a KBI agent to Dick's home in Edgerton, Kansas, and that his parents were interviewed under a ruse. 
An old report was found that showed it would be a few days after they heard Dick's name before they sent someone to his home. This discrepancy was reported in major newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal. The idea is that Capote changed this in the book to make Dewey look like he jumped on the lead immediately instead of sitting on it for five days, letting the killers get farther away. Agent Dewey's son, however, has reports of his father's to show that the investigation into this lead occurred the very next day. And he has reports on it for every day leading up to the interview at the Hickox home and every day after. There was no delay in pursuing this lead, even if Dick's parents' home wasn't the first place they went. They had to get enough evidence to ask for a search warrant of the Hickok home. Had they gone to that house without a warrant, they could have tipped the suspect off and given him time to dispose of any evidence. When they did get a warrant, investigators did go to the Hickok home. They asked Dick's mother specifically about the weekend of the Clutter murders. She told him that Dick said he and Perry had headed out to Fort Scott, Kansas to see Perry's sister. She said he returned the next day, but she hadn't seen him since then. They searched the home and they found a 12-gauge shotgun in Dick's closet. In 1959, Kansas, a 12-gauge shotgun on a farm, it wasn't unusual. But in one of Dick's drawers, they found a shirt with blood on it. They also spoke to Dick's boss and they learnt that he left work on November 20th. He never showed up there again and he hadn't given any notice. On November 21st, he passed bad checks in Kansas City. That's the last time anyone saw him at that point. Perry Smith, he was still with him. So who was Dick Hickok? Let's go over a little background on him and his friend Perry Smith. Dick was born in 1931. He grew up in a stable family. He played several sports, was considered a generally happy child. His family didn't have a lot of money, and his father was really strict. But aside from that, Dick had few things to complain about growing up. He wanted to go to college after high school to study engineering, but his family couldn't afford it, so he went right to work. He could often find work as a mechanic because he was mechanically inclined and he worked hard. When he was 19, he married his 16-year-old girlfriend, and they would go on to have three kids together. Shortly after he married, though, he was in a car accident. He was driving on wet asphalt and he lost control of his car. He was ejected from the car had a serious head injury. He was unconscious. A witness of the accident stopped and actually had to pull him out of the drainage ditch on the side of the road before he drowned. He was completely knocked out. His parents point to this, marking a change in his behavior, and he said he had some periods of passing out completely in the years after his accident. Something that surprised me with Dick is that it turns out he wasn't afraid to work for a living. Only he spent more than he could ever earn, and he was out of work for a little while after his accident. He turned to stealing and passing bad checks to make up the deficit between what he could earn and what he was spending. He cheated on his wife and eventually left her for another woman who he had a child with. They married, but she divorced him while he was in prison for passing bad checks and stealing those firearms. And it was in prison where he met Perry Smith. Perry Smith had a much more troubled past than Dick had. His mother Florence was Cherokee and his father Tex was Irish. 
They met during a rodeo show and continued to perform in that rodeo even after marriage and the birth of their four children. They had two boys and two girls. When Perry was a toddler, the family moved to Alaska. Tex was abusive. After one beating, Florence had him arrested. While he was in jail, she loaded the kids up into the truck, including a six-year-old Perry, and left Alaska for California. Florence battled alcoholism, and Perry was largely left unsupervised. Because of that, he began committing petty crimes when he was still a child. Florence died as a result of alcohol, though I have seen it reported both that she choked on her own vomit when she was passed out drunk, and that she died from acute alcohol poisoning. From the time his mother separated from his father when he was six and the age of 16 when he entered the Merchant Marines, he floated between orphanages, his father's home and juvenile detention centres. He experienced abuse in all of those places and he carried scars from that into adulthood. He eventually joined the army and was sent to Korea during the war. Although he was given an honourable discharge during his service, he had been court-martialed numerous times, often for fighting. After he was out of the service, he was in a motorcycle accident that seriously damaged his legs. He spent six months to a year recovering in the hospital. While he could walk, he had chronic pain, and he would not wear shorts or bathing trunks because of the disfigurement to his legs after the accident. He hitchhiked around the country working odd jobs. In July of 1955, he found himself in Kansas, where he stole office equipment during a break-in. He took off around the country, but was eventually caught and sent back to Kansas, where he was sentenced to five to ten years for the burglary. While in the Kansas State Pen, Dick and Perry meet when they're cellmates for a short time. One story Perry tells Dick is of a time he killed a black man in Las Vegas. He said he took the man out to the desert and beat him to death with a bicycle chain for no reason except to do it. And most notably to Dick, Perry said it didn't bother him much that he killed anyone. Of course, it didn't bother him because it never happened. The man existed, but Perry never killed him. This was one of those tough guy stories that are shared in prison to make the teller seem harder and crueler than he is. Perry was a small man. He was only five foot four. Having a reputation for being ruthless would certainly be helpful in that situation. Dick believed him and realized Perry was the type of person he needed, someone who could kill without a second thought. Perry was paroled shortly before Dick, and he moved out west and was living in Idaho when he received a letter from Dick to come back to Kansas. Dick had heard about this rich farmer with $10,000 in a safe, and it was a sure thing. He just needed Perry to come out and help him with this big score. A condition of Perry's release was that he was not allowed back to the state of Kansas. He wasn't necessarily interested in traveling all the way back to commit a robbery with Dick, except another prisoner he was friends with was being released at the same time. That man, known in the book In Cold Blood as Willie J, though that's not his real name, was the real reason Perry risked coming back to Kansas. There is some debate on Perry's relationship with Willie J, whether it was romantic or just a deep friendship. Perry relied on Willie J's wisdom and counseling in prison, and that's all we really know for sure. By the time Perry made it to Kansas, 
Willie J had been released and moved out east. So Perry decided to go ahead with Dick's plan, and you have to wonder how things would have turned out if Perry had gotten to Kansas early enough to find Willie J instead of Dick Hickok. After telling Dick's mother that they were headed to Fort Scott, Perry and Dick made their way to Holcomb. They stopped in Aporia, Kansas for rope on their way out there. After the murders, they drove through Garden City and stopped to bury some evidence before they headed back to Edgerton, where Dick went about his usual daily life. After Dick passed the bag checks in Kansas City on November 21st, he and Perry headed south to Mexico. Now, Perry had this dream of moving to Mexico and finding wealth there. He believed there was buried treasure in Mexico, and he imagined this life as a treasure hunter. But the money from Kansas City didn't last forever. So they sold Dick's car for some extra money, though they both blamed each other for being bad with money. They ran out of money pretty quickly, so Dick tried to get a job as a mechanic. But he was insulted by the low wages offered and insisted they needed to go back to the U.S., They mailed their belongings to the Las Vegas Post Office General Delivery under Perry's name. If you mail something to the Post Office General Delivery, the Post Office will hold it for 30 days to pick up. They re-entered the US through California and hitchhiked to Iowa. There they stole a car and headed back to Kansas City. Dick had a plan to pass more bad checks in Kansas City. They were back in Kansas City on December 15. A store clerk got the make, model and license plate number of the car they were driving and when the check came back as a fraud, he called the police. They showed him a picture of Hitchcock and which he identified as the man who passed the bad check and they started looking all over Kansas City for him and Perry. But they didn't stay in Kansas City long enough to get caught. At this point, the KBI had been keeping their names out of press conferences and press releases, so Dick and Perry had no idea that they were even onto them. But they weren't running from the KBI specifically. They were just running in general. By December 21st, they were in Miami Beach, where they sold the items they bought with the bad checks. On the 26th, they were back on the road, travelling through the south, out of Arizona, and then to Las Vegas. Investigators had put out an attempt to locate on them and their car with the information they had from the store clerk, and they sent it to various cities. Las Vegas was known to investigators as somewhere Perry and Dick had been before, so it was sent there. A Las Vegas policeman on patrol on December 30th happened to spot the car outside the post office. When they opened the trunk, they found a box of items Perry and Dick had mailed General Delivery, and this box contained two pairs of boots, matching the descriptions of the boot prints from the crime scene. Perry and Dick were arrested. At this point, they didn't know they were suspects in the Clutter murders, only that they were suspected of passing bad checks and driving a stolen car. It's crazy to think that if they had been arrested just a half hour earlier, They never would have picked up that box from the post office, and the evidence of the boots would have been thrown away. Four KBI investigators drove out to Las Vegas to interrogate the suspects. They were able to get Dick talking pretty easily. Dick was a con man. 
he was used to being able to talk his way into and out of pretty much anything. And so that's what he did. He tried talking. He talked about his life, his check passing issues. Then the investigators asked him about the clutter murders. He denied it at first, but they told him he had left a witness behind. The next time they talked to him and told him he was looking at four murder charges, he looked at the evidence they had and he asked an important question. Could he plead out to manslaughter since he never pulled the trigger? On January 3rd, Dick gave a full recorded confession. He denied having pulled the trigger or having wanted the murders to happen at all. He put the bulk of the blame on Perry. In Perry's interrogation on January 2nd, he wasn't quite as forthcoming. He denied any involvement and he just kept denying it no matter what they said. But then on January 4th, both were charged with four counts of first-degree murder and transported back to Kansas. So the agents, they took two cars back so they could keep Perry and Dick separated. When Perry was told that Dick confessed, Perry first didn't believe it. Dick wouldn't have confessed. But then they told Perry a story that Dick had told them. And it was the story about Perry killing a man in Las Vegas for no reason. And then Perry knew. Dick had to have confessed. There was no other way the investigators would have heard that made-up story. Perry then confessed his own involvement during this ride back to Kansas, something that he will change with later statements. But in the initial statement on the ride back to Kansas, he claimed that he killed the men and Dick had killed the women. So what happened that night? Well, according to the killers, they drove to Holcomb and found the house. Dick was sure that the safe was in the office, so they entered the unlocked office door and looked for the safe. When they couldn't find the safe, rather than leaving, they went into the main house where they found Herb in bed. They woke him, they asked him where the safe was and where the money was. He told them that he didn't have any. Dick then had Perry cut the phone wires and they went upstairs to the rest of the family with Herb at gunpoint. Now, you may wonder why they just didn't grab some stuff and run or spend more time focused on getting information out of Herb. Well, according to Dick, he knew there was a teenage girl in the house and he wanted to rape her. He said that even when he thought of turning back from the robbery angle, he couldn't stop thinking about the girl. Dick would later confess to having an interest in girls as young as 12 and having abused them. Nancy was not raped, though, because Perry became enraged when he found out that's what Dick had planned and stopped him from doing it. While they were upstairs, they woke everyone and locked the entire family in the bathroom while they searched the house. They found roughly $50 around the house. They decided to separate the family, so they took the women out one at a time and Perry tied them up in their bedrooms. They then took Kenyon and Herb down to the basement and tied them up in separate rooms. They stood over Herb, lying on the box on the floor, and kept asking him where the money was, but he insisted that he didn't have anything more than what they already took. Dick then told Perry, as they're standing over Herb, to, quote, get rid of them, meaning the family, since they had all seen them. According to Floyd Wells and Perry Smith, Dick had said all along they weren't going to leave witnesses even though he would later say he didn't expect anyone to be killed. Nobody believes that. Perry would say he never intended to kill the family until he did it. 
It was a fit of rage that initiated the killings. Perry had extreme and violent, angry outbursts at times. While Dick was telling him they have to kill the family, Dick himself wasn't making any move to do so. Perry got angry at Dick, extremely angry that he was just standing there, not doing anything, telling him what to do. And can you imagine what was going through Herb's mind at this moment? He would have been powerless, tied up, but knowing that... What can you do? You know your family's going to die. You see these two guys arguing. It would have been terrifying. It's actually going to get worse. Perry used a knife. He stabbed Herb in the neck, and then he told Dick it was his turn. Dick stabbed him once in the same spot Perry had, and then Perry shot Herb. Then he shot Kenyon. Perry first said they went upstairs, and Dick shot the women, first Nancy, then Bonnie. But He changed his story and said he shot them all. He said he didn't want Dick's mother, who was a nice and kind person, to think her son murdered anyone. Because he seemed so concerned what other people think. Perry was such an odd person in this way, where he would have these incredible fits of rage, and he admitted he didn't feel remorse about killing the family, but he was concerned about Dick's mother's feelings, so he was going to take the whole rap. There are some things with Perry in reading the book that I just don't understand, but I can't imagine Bonnie laying up there tied up, hearing her entire family killed one by one, and then they came into the room for her. This story is absolutely horrific, and you can understand, even though I personally am not pro-death penalty, why the prosecutor decided that this was a death penalty case. And we won't ever know for sure which story is the truth if Dick pulled the trigger at all. There are people who believe both scenarios. I think more people believe that Perry did in fact shoot them all and implicated Dick just to get back at him for betraying him by confessing. But in the end, it doesn't matter because none of this would have happened if Dick didn't send Perry that letter. Back in Kansas, the prosecutor announced he intended to seek the death penalty in this case. Life without parole was not an option. Kansas is one of three states without life without parole as a sentence. A standard life sentence means parole could be granted after 15 years. In truly heinous crimes, a 40-to-life sentence can be issued but wouldn't make them eligible for parole for 40 years. Dick and Perry were facing four counts. If they were sentenced to 15 to life in all four to run concurrent, they could be up for parole in 15 years. But if they ran consecutively, they wouldn't be eligible for parole at 15 years. They would have to serve 15 years for each sentence separately for a total of 60 years. This is how BTK serial killer Dennis Rader ended up with what was surely a life sentence – The judge gave him nine 15-to-life sentences, one 40-to-life sentence, all to run consecutively, giving him 175 years before parole could be granted. So while Kansas doesn't have a life without parole sentence, in the case of someone who committed multiple murders, they can stack them in a way to make sure that they never get out. The trial started on March 22nd, 1960, with jury selection. The courthouse was packed. The case was tried right in Garden City without a change of venue. In fact, the jury was comprised of people who at least knew about the crime and four who knew the clutters personally. The strategy here 
is different than in most cases. With the evidence and the detailed confessions, Perry and Dick were never going to get a not guilty verdict, and they couldn't get off on an insanity defense. Kansas uses the McNaughton rule, and this states that the defendant can only be found not guilty by reason of insanity if they were so out of their mind at the time of the crime that they either didn't know what they were doing was wrong or they didn't know what they were doing at all. But based on Dick and Perry's own words, this didn't fit. Their defense likely knew a guilty verdict was coming. What the defense really hoped to get out of the trial was to get the men life sentences instead of the death sentence. Garden City was a Christian area. The clutter's own minister had preached against the death penalty. The case was well known in the state, so they were not going to find somewhere in the state where no one had heard of it. So they decided instead of taking their chances in a new community that may have been more leaning towards pro-death penalty, they felt they had a fair chance to get the life sentence if they stayed in Garden City. So they did not pursue a change of venue. The prosecution put on their case for four days. The case could have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt in half that time, I'm sure, but they called all the witnesses they could. Agent Dewey gave testimony of Perry's confession and revealed for the first time that Dick intended to rape Nancy. Dick himself didn't know Perry had told the authorities that, though he had talked about it in a statement he wrote for a psychiatrist, which we will talk about in a minute. Dewey also said that Perry said he wanted to change his original statement to claim he had killed all the clutters because Dick didn't want his parents to think he killed anyone and Perry thought the Hitcocks were nice people. One of Dick's hopes to avoid the death penalty was for the jury to consider the fact that he wasn't actually the one who pulled the trigger. It doesn't matter legally, he's just as culpable as Perry even if he didn't shoot anyone but it may sway them to be a little more lenient with him. But Dewey's testimony that Perry was motivated to change his story for the sake of the Hitchcock family left a doubt as to whether or not it was the actual truth. The defence did what they could. They objected to the crime scene photos being shown to the jury, claiming that it was prejudicial, but this was overruled. They tried to cast out of Floyd Wells' testimony. He was a criminal who got a reward and early parole for his cooperation, after all. They also put forward that the confessions were coerced. The defense then called five witnesses and took about 90 minutes total for both of them to present their cases. And the defendants were not among those witnesses. On Dick's side, his father testified about the car accident and the head injury that he says, changed his son's personality. On cross-examination, though, he admitted Dick's first arrest for breaking and entering had been in 1949, which was a year before the accident. A psychiatrist named Dr. Jones, who worked specifically with those deemed criminally insane, testified for the defense. The defense for both men wanted to show mitigating circumstances that would warrant sparing their lives. So they had the psychiatrist evaluate both men. He had them write these autobiographical statements, and he spoke with both of them for two or more hours. The autobiographical statement is where Dick confessed his attraction to younger girls and his plan to rape Nancy Clutter. Dr. Jones was first called to testify for Dick's defense, 
But because of the rules on legal insanity, the judge only let him testify as to whether the defendants knew right from wrong. When Dick's defense attorney asked him to elaborate, the prosecutor objected and the judge sustained it. So when asked about Dick, he said yes, Dick did know right from wrong. His full opinion that he was not allowed to give in court was that Dick suffered a significant head injury and may have lasting effects, but he needed a more thorough evaluation to assess this completely. He also felt that Dick had antisocial behaviors that he used to cope with his emotional frustrations and that he had a, quote, severe character disorder. He had morals and ethics, but he didn't use them when making decisions. And really, from what it sounds like to me is he's trying to say that Dick was a psychopath. That's just my opinion of what I read on it. That's what it seemed to me as well. That was the end of Dick's defense, aside from closing arguments. Perry's attorney called three character witnesses for Perry, but the prosecution objected so much to what they said, claiming it was irrelevant to the case, and the judge kept sustaining it, that they barely got to say anything before being dismissed from the stand. And the fourth witness for Perry was Dr. Jones again. And again, he was only allowed to testify as to if Perry knew right from wrong at the time of the murders and if he had an opinion on it. And he testified he did not have an opinion on it. He didn't know at that point whether Perry knew right from wrong at the time. Like before he was dismissed from the stand, that was all he was allowed to say. But if he was allowed to elaborate, he would have testified that Perry had a severe mental illness bordering on psychosis. He had an inability to control his anger, though Perry would need a more full evaluation like Dick would need. He suspected possible paranoid schizophrenia. Then the defense had their closing statements where they basically just asked for mercy and appealed to the jury to value human life. And after 30 to 40 minutes of deliberation, the jury returned with guilty verdicts on all counts, and they were sentenced to death. Dick and Perry were moved to death row in Kansas State Penitentiary. Their execution date was set for May 13, 1960, just six weeks away. But death sentence comes with automatic appeals. They were granted a stay of execution to give them time to appeal for new trials. Dick particularly wrote a lot of letters to anyone he thought could help him. After two years, he eventually got the attention of Everett Stearman, who at the time was serving as chairman for the Legal Aid Committee in Kansas. Hickox claims that a change of venue should have been pursued, that his representation was inadequate, and that the jury was biased because they knew the victims, and these were strong accusations that Stearman took seriously. But all their arguments were shut down in a hearing and they were not granted a new trial. In the next three years, they would appeal up to the Supreme Court three times, but the court declined to hear the case without comment. The median time spent on death row between sentencing and execution was 17 months at the time. Dick and Perry spent five years on death row. On April 14, 1965, the men were hanged. Back while they were waiting for trial, Dick and Perry took lie detector tests concerning another murder case. 
They were in Florida at the same time a family of four, the Walkers, were murdered. They both passed the polygraph. Perry said he feels the murders were possibly a copycat and both maintain their innocence. We will be covering the Walker case in an upcoming episode, so we won't go into too much detail here. The basics are that Christine Walker arrived home from grocery shopping. At some point after she started putting the groceries away, she was attacked in the home, raped, and shot. Her husband and two kids came into the house while the attacker was still there, and they too were killed. Because it's known Dick and Perry were in the area at the time, and we know that they already killed one family of four, and this family, the Walkers, had mentioned they were considering buying a car that was the same make and model that Perry and Dick were driving at the time, it made them suspects pretty early on. Perhaps they got access to the family through this supposed sale of the car. If there's more to say on this case and the possible connection to the Clutter murders, which is why we're going to go ahead and devote a whole episode to the case. Even long after their deaths, Dick and Perry were still suspects. In 2012, Dick and Perry's bodies were exhumed to take DNA from their remains for comparison to samples from the Walker case. The Walker case only had partial DNA due to the degradation of the evidence because of improper storage, so the results were inconclusive. It's just difficult to know what exactly happened between Dick's and Perry's changing stories, and because of the artistic license Capote did take in the book, it is hard to piece it all together and get the whole picture of what exactly happened. Yeah, there was a lot of bias some people feel of Capote towards Perry, where he tried to paint him as a more sympathetic character than perhaps he should have been seen as. And I think you're right. Dick and Perry are changing their stories and then everything's going through Capote's filter, what we understand about this case. In Cold Blood is one of the most famous, if not the most famous, true crime books. And that's most people's understanding of the case. When Truman Capote was known for not taking notes and not recording interviews. He would do the interview, then he'd go and he'd write it out. He may have forgotten things. He may have gotten things wrong and then add in his artistic license. To fill in the gaps. To yeah. fill in the gap, And it's not reporting. He, His goal was to write a nonfiction book as though it was fiction. He called it literary nonfiction. He did write a very compelling book. But he wasn't a journalist, and it seems that some of these ethical calls he made, he made them more towards making the book he wanted versus telling the truth. Most of those involved in this have passed away. Nancy and Kenyon Clutter's friends are grandparents now. The family did not support the writing of In Cold Blood, and they took exception of the portrayal of Bonnie in particular, as you mentioned earlier, Charlie. Ivana and Beverly have declined numerous interview requests over the years, and in the rare interviews that they have done, they opt to focus on their family's life and not their death, as they did right from the start. They've kept family scrapbooks so their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren can know Herb, Bonnie, Nancy and Kenyon, beyond what Truman Capote put forward. Dick Hickcock's brother wrote a book called In the Shadow of My Brother's Cold Blood about life as the family of an infamous killer left behind. 
Truman Capote attended the execution of Dick and Perry. Witnesses say he cried. His biographer reported that this experience of spending six years on a book that he was only able to finish after these two men who he wrote to multiple times a week were hanged, this was damaging to him. Capote never completed another book, and in 1984, he died of liver disease after years of alcoholism and substance abuse. The writing on In Cold Blood and the issues surrounding it, that could make its own episode. I was actually hoping to do that on this episode, but we don't have three hours to be here. So hopefully in our spare time, we'll have a chance to release a bonus episode on that topic. And finally, while there were a number of memorials to the clutters in their church and local buildings, Bobby Rupp asked the city council to approve a memorial to the family in Holcomb's Community Park. And in 2012, it was dedicated. And I keep calling him Bobby Rupp, but he's a grown man now. Bob Rupp, he himself takes care of the memorial. Alright, thank you all for tuning in. I want to send some thank yous to some of our Patreon supporters. Laura T, Shania E, Michelle W, Julie R, and Mallory V. Thank you so much for your support. You can find us at patreon.com slash insightpod. We put out bonus episodes every month, and we also have some merch rewards. We have something new coming starting in January, so keep an eye out for that. You can find us on Facebook at Insight Two Words. We have a page and a group. I'm on Twitter at Insightful Pod. If you want to talk to Allie on Instagram, it's at Insight Pod. You can email both of us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. This is our second to last show for the year. We have an episode next week, and then we were on break for two weeks for the holiday. We say break, but we're working on some Big things for 2018, including going twice a week, hopefully starting in February. So we will be working. We're trying to get ourselves set up for a successful 2018. So we will see you back next week.